Uh, you, you told us not to talk about any more horror stories. <laughs> Get ready to strap in for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view of the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. Hey, we're back with episode two of Love and Hate on the No Driving Gloves podcast. We sorry we dropped off a little bit early or in the mid-episode last week. We just want to keep them all at about an hour or 45 minutes so it works for your commute, your jogs, etc. We're going to go ahead and rejoin last week's episode. We're going to start a little bit where Will was talking about his new acquisition of a shop truck. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, and on, on that truck, we actually left the original paint on it. We just restored the bottom side, you know, updated the suspension, put a, a later model, you know, big block forward in it and, and just made it so you could use it as a modern day shop truck. But the outside was still original paint and, you know, the interior, we we actually used the original seat and dash and, and tried to keep all of that, you know, as original appearing as possible. and. I don't know, my words of uh, kind of preserving it a- as much as I could. <laughs> I know I know y'all's, uh, Derek, y'all's definition uh, of preservation is a little different than mine. We've, we've touched on that before. But, you know, it's, it's all, um, we all do it for the same reason, because we love it. And uh, ultimately, that's apparently probably all three of us, one of the most favorite things about it is, is the history of it. Yeah, I have my my couple of history stories because when we do a restoration, we we like to use the term a snapshot in time. And being race cars, they change on a weekly basis. They're used, they're raced, they're wrecked, they're rebuilt. The the latest part comes out or you need to do something, add cooling, cut a vent into it, put a roll bar in depending what the rules are. So they cha- they're they're ever changing artifacts. What is the most correct? Where where do you put the car back to? We just basically gather information and then we look at and figure out the most significant points in time with a vehicle. And I've alluded here, I think before, about a Lotus that I restored and oldest picture I had was in 1983. In the background, there's one of the smaller body Buick LeSabres. And that's the only picture I had of the car prior, I mean, really history. I had some pictures from the late 90s when it was just a bas- literally a basket case. The car was in pieces. And going through an old antiquated hand-typed registry of owners, and I was able to decipher a phone number that was incorrectly typed, made contact with the owner of the car, that had originally, he was a second owner, had imported the car in the early, or excuse me, late 50s, was still coherent, could do, understood computers, emailed, had the information on his hard drive. And that afternoon, I had photos from 1958 of this vehicle. And those are the pictures we decided to restore the car to. That was the snapshot in time. Ironically, Days after we did an unveiling and we had this owner down to see the car 
and he got to enjoy it. And we tried to restore it to what we anticipated or we felt was the way he would have picked the car up at the docks when they unloaded it off the ship. Keep in mind, he was 18 years old and imported his own sports car. We got a call from the son of the, or an email from the son of the original builder of the car, who then provided us pictures of the car before it was sold when it was in the United Kingdom being raced, and it was still actually aluminum colored. It hadn't had paint applied. And one of the theories I have about Lotus is a lot of the cars, the sports racers they did, they would sell to the customer and they provide them unpainted because there was no reason to paint them. It would just add expense and these guys wanted to race. So they never, the cars never got painted until their first shunt. And when they were damaged, it's very expensive to bring polished aluminum back to, from a wreck state to where you could polish it again. So a lot of them had filler applied and were painted and that's how they lived their lives. So that was one of the great little stories of being able to research something, find something, go through the information, decipher the information, and come up with something that really impacted the the car. Another one, another car that I restored, we knew the car raced and it was blue. Everybody knew the car was blue, but the funny thing is the pictures I had from the race program where the car raced, the car was orange with blue numbers. Could never figure out, you know, could not figure it out, could not figure it out. One day I was chatting with a graphic artist friend of mine who was visiting. He looked at it and he said, well, they didn't put the cyan in when they developed those pictures. Look at the background and look at these things. And being a graphic artist, he he saw that. So he took the photographs and added the cyan back in. And guess what? I had a blue car with yellow numbers and I had green grass and everything made sense then. So it's one of those funny things that the pictures can even lie to you when it comes to doing these restorations. Because if I went went into this kind of blindly with no information and no doubt, we could have very well restored this car to what we thought was a significant point in time and made it orange. And it was supposed to be blue. So like I said, you can't even believe the pictures of the time. And another, everybody knows this vehicle. Everybody's seen pictures of this vehicle. There's, I would venture to say there's not a person on the planet in a civilized country that has not seen this vehicle. Everybody thinks it is stark white. The company I used to be with, they've restored all three that remain in existence. And our research and going through the layers, these vehicles were not bright white. They were actually a slightly off-white, almost an eggshell, and that being the Saturn V rocket. Everybody thinks that is a bright white vehicle, and that's the way it photographed on TV. That's the way it photographs everywhere. It's not bright white. It's actually, and if you get an opportunity to go to the Houston um, Houston Space Center, uh, Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville or Cape Canaveral, and you see these rockets, the Saturn Vs, those are all just off-white. They're not bright white, and a lot of people will notice it and say, well, it's the wrong color. No, that's actually the colors they were. It's really funny reasons. We could never 100% determine the actual, actual reason. 
But it's one of those things. We could have very well went with the pictures and not done the research and not removed the layers and layers of paint because when they were repainted before they were properly restored, they were just painted white. And it's just these little funny things that you get over time, this stuff happens. And you you can't believe the pictures. You can't believe what's happening. You just have to live with, you know, you have to do thorough research in order to present this stuff correctly. And we'll also find that a lot of times I'm in the situation right now that there's a certain shade of red that I need that does not exist anymore. Or on early Lotus, they used a panel called Lama Plate, which was a, a piece of steel, a vinyl-like covering on one side. And this panel is still available. Lama Plate still available with black. But Lotus commonly used it with a red finish. And that red finish is no longer available. I have one of the last dashboards uh, from a Lotus 23 that is in this red Lama Plate. But you can't buy red Lama plate anywhere in the world anymore. It doesn't exist unless you get lucky and you find somebody who's hoarding it. it again, it goes back to that research and challenge is you, how, how do you go ahead and replicate it? There is a way to almost do Lama plate now using wrinkle powder coating, but it, it's still not right, but it at least appears correct. And I'll point it out to you on the certain vehicles that it's been done because... I'm not going to lie to you about my restoration. You know, it appears correct, it'll photograph correct, but it's not exactly right. Yeah, and I think one of the other things, you know, John talking about the issues with, you know, things like the Lama plate, all those things we also have to kind of deal with and it's maybe one of the uh things that aren't as fun, uh, maybe getting to, into the other side of things when we're restoring the cars or, or doing something with them is some of the coatings that used to be used, we can't use anymore. We can't even get our hands on it because it is, you know, environmentally dangerous or a number of things. You know, we have to find these ways to make it appear to have the right finish, but it's never going to have that finish again. Just because, you know, we know things, you know, now that maybe they didn't know as well back then, um, especially on some of the early cars, that can be, I guess, one of the, the frustrating things in a restoration or in when we're trying to do, you know, preservation work, things like that, is dealing with some of those issues that we can't always recreate exactly as it was to make it historically accurate. And that's the, and the key is what you just said at the end there is, you know, we all have to be honest about it and just say, yeah, we've done the best we can to make it appear right, but we know it's, it's not ever going to be right or the way it was ever again because it's just impossible. Yeah, touching on coatings and the paint process, and that that's one of the things that I do not look forward to. I know that's bad to say because when you walk up on one of Big Oak Garage's hot rods, the first thing you see is how straight, how slick the paint is. But wow, people do not realize how much time and really hard work goes into that. And I don't mind the block sanding. I don't mind the sanding and the buffing. And, you know, I don't mind any of that. The part that, that is frustrating is 
here we go again with aftermarket products that you deal with, with chemicals. You know, I mean, there's no, yeah, they have sheets that tell you how to use it and, and all this stuff, but if the temperature's too high or if the temperature's too low, you know, there's just so many variables when it comes to mixing chemicals together and then applying them to a car. And, you know, we've spent countless hours of, you know, prepping this body for paint. And then you have, you know, two chemicals that, that, that don't like each other. And then here you go. You're, you're, you're starting the process almost all over again. And, you know, we go by the book on everything just, just for the sheer fact that a redo of, of a paint job in our shop could cost tens of thousands of dollars. And we don't, you know, we don't want to eat that and we're not going to make the customer pay for it twice. There you go. You're dealing with aftermarket paint products that most of the time they, they, they work like they're supposed to, but there's, there's always that one time where, you know, something, the, the hardener went bad sitting on the shelf or you got something that was out of date and it can just totally screw all your hard work up. Yeah, and I mean, those are the, you know, we talked for a long time about the fun things we get to do and and the fun we have, parts that we enjoy, but there's, as with anything, there's always the stuff you enjoy and there's the stuff you don't want to do. You know, I grew up restoring cars, as we talked about with, you know, my father. Um, He has a restoration shop. I've, you know, most of the time as a kid, was doing more body work than mechanical work. Um, and as I've progressed in my career, I've almost flipped and I do a lot more mechanical stuff now in getting cars running for, you know, the museums and collections and not a lot of body work, uh, anymore. You know, my, in some ways, my dad and I are quite opposite in that because he enjoys doing a lot of the body work and, and the paint work and all those things. Because at the end of the day, all he has to do is take a, a blowgun and blow the dust off of himself. And, you know, he's, he's pretty clean. You know, he doesn't like all that much getting, you know, into uh, the mechanicals. And, you know, like John said, getting that, you know, greasy mess all over your hands that you got to, you know, soak out and, and really, you know, get rid of. And I'm, I, like I say, I'm kind of the opposite now. I, I enjoy digging into an engine and figuring it out and getting it running before I want to go and grab a, a sanding block and start blocking primer or, you know, filler, you know, to get the, the panel straight. <laughs> so, you know, to all of us and, and each our own in this hobby, we enjoy parts of it and we really hate parts of it. That's why, especially for somebody like Will that has a shop, you know, having a, having a bunch of guys that have different passions about each stage of the process is really fantastic because then maybe you don't have to do all the things you hate all the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that that definitely helps. But if you if you've noticed the pattern of what I don't like is the stuff that cost me money. <laughs> <laughs> so. For... <laughs> Pretty much everything else I'm I'm cool with. You know, it don't really bother me. I enjoy it. But when it starts dipping into the to the back pocket, that's that's the part that uh really gets to me. And you know, it wasn't really that way when 
before I was a shop owner, I I still didn't really like the the bodywork process. I I would rather be in the shop, you know, with a hammer and a dolly or using the planishing hammer or, or the pull max or the the yoder or whatever, you know, making something. But yeah, it it, it changes over time, that's for sure. You discussed the, the refinishing and the painting and such, but what gets me is everybody thinks of the painting and the bodywork of the body itself. One of the things that drives me crazy, and this is kind of the management standpoint, and I've seen it in many, many shops, and it just absolutely drives me nuts. And it goes all the way back to your paint is only as good as what you start with. And why do so many shops hire, we'll call them high schoolers or people just getting into the industry? And right after they get promoted from sweeping floors, their next job in a shop is you get a glass bead the parts, which to me is one of the most important times to be working on a car to pay attention. When you're going to media blast, whether it be glass beading, slurry blasting, plastic, whatever. You put it in the media cabinet, you're blasting off, you know, hopefully you've cleaned most of the grease and dirt off, but you're always blasting grease and dirt off, and then you're blasting all the paint off. And at that point, that's when you should be doing initial inspections to me, looking for cracks, looking for oblong holes, looking for things that are wrong as these layers of paint and dirt and debris come off. You start watching for that. Or many times I've seen the the pieces get finished and then turned over to the paint shop and they still have a little bit of grease somewhere or a, a little nub of something. And then they just get painted because when you're painting chassis and suspension components, the detail, maybe in Will's case, a little bit different, but the detail is not necessarily is he adhered to as much because it's somebody taught me a long time ago, a low CVA, excuse me, low CVA low customer viewing area. And the customer's not going to, you know, notice that on his A-arm or his spindle. But it's still, it just absolutely drives me nuts that you you give this, to me, extremely important job to the low man on the totem pole because it's treated as a mindless task that, you know, we can give it to them and we don't have to pay a lot of labor dollars for that to be done where it will affect a finish, where it'll affect safety and come back into play. And I mean, the same thing can take accredited to modern automobile shops. My first, really my first job in a shop was at a Goodyear Tire and Auto Center. And first day on the job, I'm doing oil changes. So yes, I'm doing this nice, simple task with no experience and no knowledge. And if I made a mistake, I'm going to damage the most expensive piece on that car. And it's just never made sense to me that you put somebody, you know, if I fail to put oil in or I put the wrong oil in or I put too much oil in or I put too little oil in or I didn't get the filter tight and the thing runs and it blows up the motor, you know, in the late 80s, four or five grand, now ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 mistake. And it's given, it's given to the guy that has, you got your application done, you passed your drug test, here you go. And it, it just never irritates the heck out of me, but it's it's an irritation from a management standpoint. It's not an irritation from necessarily a task. I don't mind changing oil if I've got a lift and everything's easy to reach and you know, stuff like that. I don't mind the, the media blasting as much 
there's a lot of lot of importance to that task. And part of me is I I live my life looking for the worst case scenario and it keeps me a pretty happy man. It's optimistically pessimistic because no matter what happens, it's no worse than I expected. Do, doing that and those, those little, like I said, the, the glass beating of suspension components or the, the well, say cleaning, normally it's, you know, it's done with more aggressive media or the oil change when it comes to modern automobiles. And like I say, I, I just don't understand that. I, I don't know. I doubt if we have the answer. Yeah, no, I, I don't understand it either. And it's funny you bring that up because just as a going down a sidetrack here, Last night and today, I was dealing with a vehicle that had the oil change done incorrectly. My wonderful fiance, her her fantastic sister, decided to do a surprise visit with her two kids who are very young. Uh, her dad came with. You know, they get here, unload everything. My future sister-in-law just mentions to me, because of course I work on cars, there was a horrible smell on the way down. Huh. And I didn't think too much of it. I figured I could look into it, but I walked by the the front end of her car to, you know, just go help carry something, I think. I was grabbing a, a suitcase or something. It stunk. I mean, it was horrible. So I immediately popped the hood and the oil change place, they'd left the oil fill cap off. The entire underside of the hood, the engine is just sprayed with oil. And, you know, she drove from Ohio to Kentucky, uh, quite a long drive. And the, the probably the worst part of it all, it had blown oil out. There were pools of oil anywhere they could pool. I pulled the dipstick and the engine was still over full on oil after blowing all that oil out. And, and you know, it goes to, you know, John, like I said, sidetrack here. But, yeah, I don't understand that giving these important jobs... And sometimes very high risk jobs of expensive damage to some of the lower people in the shop, you know, and and kind of need to get them to develop the skills before they're dropped right into something. I guess it, it kind of proves that that set part number seven ten on everybody's car <laughs> is 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 really important. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've been guilty of leaving that oil cap off, you know, myself. But it also proves. We need to educate a little bit more on the the driver standpoint. I'm gonna pick on your sister a little bit. There's this horrible smell. Future sister. Did they stop? Uh, excuse me. So be nice. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm honest, not nice. <laughs> my my dad taught me that. <laughs> if you get those odd smells, it's pertinent. I'm. I'll be. I'll say. I'm probably just as guilty of it. I won't stop right away. But if I get to a rest area, I'll pull over and, oh, I guess that tire isn't flat. You know, I didn't get a light on the dashboard. But you get that smell, you know, if they would have stopped and looked at it, they would have, you know, I guess the good thing is they didn't because they would have put the cap on and never thought anything of it and still had three quarts too much oil in their car. And that's a common thing I've seen many times over of we forgot to drain the oil, but we put five quarts in it. or you know, somebody gets sidetracked in the shop. There's no such thing as a mundane, easy task when it comes to anything on a car. I've seen experiences where you don't ever put a wheel back on a car without tightening the lug nuts. And there's many cars I've, you know, been doing a pre, pre-check, pre-drive check, and the wheels are on the car, but the lug nuts aren't tight, or especially on a center center lug nut where you have 
one nut in the middle of the wheel. You can just spin it on because, you know, you can put it on the ground. You, you never do that. Or if you do do that, I've been in shops where I've worked part time and you do part of your job and then the car needs to be moved. So you loosely put it back together. You leave very obvious notes so you don't forget where you were at or somebody doesn't hop in the car and go for a test drive. That way, if somebody does do that, you can say, <laughs> there was a big sign that says, don't drive. Why did you drive it? That, I guess, now we're flipping to the people are the greatest things about cars, but people are also the <laughs> stupidest component when it comes to the car sometimes. I, I, have, I have two pretty major big rules here at the shop. If you take a wheel off and you put it back on, I don't care if that car ain't going to be moved for 10 years. You tighten it right then and you torque it. And number two, if you're going to crank a car up, your butt better be in the seat and your foot better be on the brake. You know, I, I will live and die by them rules right there because they will save you a bunch of money one day. I promise because that car is going to be just down in reverse a little bit or somebody's going to leave it in drive when they were checking something and you're going to reach your arm through the window and you're going to fire that baby up and the safety neutral switch ain't going to work and it's going to run into your other car and then it's going to push your other car into the garage door and so now you got to fix your house and both cars <laughs> so say we we recently talked about that in, an, in a shop that I was in, and it was a uh, Impala that I was working on, and it had a neutral safety switch issue. Somebody went to do something else to the car, and we all knew it had this neutral safety switch issue, but the client hadn't paid his bill, so it gets pushed over into the storage building, and somebody went out to do something r really last minute to it, and he's got the door open, and he's laying on the seat, and half his body's out of the car, and he reached up and he fired off the ignition and that car took off like bat out of hell. Took him, took the car, went through this uh, single wide garage door, slammed the door back on him and didn't break his leg amazingly. Bent the door, the door became C-shaped and then the car took off across the parking lot and hit a stone wall. So not only did we have the leg injury to deal with. We had the door. We had to find a new door. We had to find new door glass. We had to do a new fender. We had to do a new grill. And we had bought an NOS grill for this car. New headlights. I mean, it it was a mess. You know, it's, again, it's those sim simple rules. We knew the neutral sw safety switch was broken, but he forgot when whatever he was doing. And as a lot of people refer to them, brain farts. They can cost a lot of money. But a lot of times it's not the money, it's it's the safety. And, you know, like I said, fortunately, he didn't break a leg or lose a leg or, you know, get thrown out of the car and run over. Or It's, again, looking at some of the safe safety aspects, and it goes back to it's human error. We're all human. We all make mistakes. And, you know, I hated seeing that happen to that gentleman. He, many, many years of experience, and he's still doing cars. I don't know if he's adopted your rule, and I, I, you know, I really like your rule that you don't start a car without that brake being pushed. And you alluded to somebody starting a car at a show, and you said he was firing it up, or he said he was going to fire it up, and all of a sudden it took a little bit longer, and his arms slink. You know, he's on the floorboard or something, and his arms slinking down to the brake to push the brake before he fired that ignition. And simple little safety procedures, I will say, save you money but they very well could save a life.
Yeah, and I think you're, yeah, we're all human. We all make errors. I think all of us have our horror stories of, of something that's gone wrong around a car. But, you know, and that's that kind of going back to some of what we talk about, you know, when we're doing the stuff we love, you know, running a car or getting it running for the first time, or when we're doing the stuff that we, we don't like as much, it's still about, you know, I think uh, John or Will said it, nothing is a mundane task when we're around really a machine that is capable of doing severe bodily harm, you know, all the way up to, I mean, taking your life or other people's lives. We have to be mindful, no matter what we're doing around them, that we're properly keeping our our wits about us and making sure that what we're doing is is safe for ourselves and, and anyone around us in the shop or at the show or wherever we are. Um, and that's that's key. I'll tell you another one of my favorite things about it is is loading these cars up and driving them across country. You know, um, there there ain't nothing more satisfying than getting in an old car after you've heard it crank for the first time in, you know, 10 years or 40 years or whatever, and just motoring down the road, you know, pulling up next to a 2016 Honda Civic and they're looking at you like, what? And and, and then blowing right by them and, and, you know, the looks you get and the people you, you talk to at gas stations and, and just the the feel of driving an old car there there's it's just an awesome feeling that uh you know there ain't nothing in the world that can give you that feeling of of hopping in a a, a 30s model car and, and going down the road uh even up to a 50s model car and, and uh, hitting an accelerator and just motoring down the road and getting from point A to point B it's just just a cool thing to do yeah, I, I agree. You know, well, it's there's nothing like the sound of a dual chain drive rear end, uh, wood spoked wheels rolling down the road. It's it's fantastic. You'll have to let me experience that one day. Uh, we could probably arrange that for you somehow. <laughs> I think we can do that. It's it's a whole new world. Oh, it's you know, I'm, it's I'm, enjoyable. And I'll, I'll get you uh, what you probably have. You know, a flathead with a with a quick change and no fenders and hearing that straight axle creak and pop and watching them front tires hit bumps and bounce all over the road and st- you think they're going to fall off and scare you to death. And, you know, that's just, uh, you know, that's just an awesome experience that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that, uh, either one don't care or, or two that do care and never, never will get to experience that. I don't know if I've ever ridden in a car that, you have will that wasn't like riding on a cushion of air literally usually it's it's a nice gentle ride with a little rumble and it usually makes some sort of farting noise at the end going but no that's just me (laughs) (laughs) but you know that's that's the the thing will you know some of some of what you mentioned there you know i think that's that's another cool part of this and another another fun part of the hobby and and what we do yeah, you, know, you talk about there's there's maybe there's not a lot of people that have experienced thir- certain things, but I think the three of us are all the type of people that when we have the opportunity, we try to allow those people that haven't had that opportunity to have the opportunity. 
And I don't think there's any of us that are afraid to throw somebody in a car, you know, be it in the passenger seat and give them a ride. Or if we trust them enough, you know, throw them in the driver's seat and we hop in the passenger seat and, you know, explain it to them and, and let them take it for a spin. I think that's, that's probably one of the really fun things about this is allowing people to experience something that they might not have the opportunity to. I'll tell you something I'm going to get to do this weekend that's going to be very, very, very satisfying. The guy that we restored, yes, I said restored. We didn't make a hot ride out of it. The Model A Roadster. He's bringing his grandson to the shop on Saturday. He's 14 years old. He's never driven a car, ever. All right? He's driven golf carts and four-wheelers, but never driven a car. And the first car he's going to drive is this restored Model A Roadster. I, I can't wait to to teach this young man how how to drive this 29 Roadster. You didn't say you'd put an automatic in. <laughs> it's not. It's, so it's, so wait, you I mean you've you've got the double clutching down, you're you're good on this. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, I don't know if I'm certified to teach somebody, but I bet I <laughs> I bet I can get him to go up and down the driveway. <laughs> I didn't know in in our field. So wait, you're you're going to take a, a freshly restored Model A and let the kid drive it through a field? Well, that's what they done when they were new. Why not do it now? Well, true. I'm just I'm just thinking that must be how you how you make more money on the restoration because then you well, then you charge for all the repairs. A- apparently, you hadn't seen the field out by the shop. It, it's it's uh, more like a parking lot. No, it, it's more like a. <laughs> I'm not going to say a, a nice golf course, but it's it's kind of like the golf course out in the middle of nowhere, you know. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's it's not a real nice golf course, but it ain't bad. <laughs> but it's not the cornfield. Gotcha. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we park we park cars out there a good bit whenever we have an open house or you know, a, a road tour or something's coming by or John's bringing some of his, uh, you know, club members to the shop or something like that. We've, we've got it really, really nice and level and smooth and nice grass growing out there. And so it kind of, it kind of serves two purposes, you know, it looks good and you have a place to park a bunch of cars when you have an event. And the ground's ready for when he needs to expand. So there shop. you go. Which is going to happen in about a month. Now you're making every listen, listener jealous. <laughs> it still won't be big enough. Oh, you're right. Just saying. You're, you're right. The rule I learned a long time ago, if you can afford the shop, you can afford to fill it. And it uh, doesn't matter if you can afford a 10 by 16 building, a 24 by 24 garage, a 6,000 square foot shop or 150,000 square foot, you can always fill it. <laughs> so That's what you're supposed to do. Fill it. Fill it up. And then complain that you need to build another shop so you can have room to work. Exactly. For your shop. Or we could talk about my least favorite thing, which is dealing with interiors. Oh, there we go. Yeah, what I, one of my least favorite things, probably, you know, we've talked about not a big fan of getting sand all over me and you know dust from you know sanding filler or whatever primer you're doing but interiors number one i i'm not a great uh seamstress 
I barely know how to use a sewing machine. I can uh, use a, a needle and thread pretty well in case I need to stitch something up, especially those cuts you get sometimes. But just something about interiors, it's just, and maybe it's the skill level that goes into them. Okay, in, in the conservation world and preserving an interior that's original or an, an older uh, interior on something or yeah, whatever. I, I'm happy to do that because I understand the the processes to use and to attempt to keep those interiors as stable as possible for as long as we possibly can. But when it comes to restoring an interior, you know, something like that, it's just, I guess it's a skill set I don't have. And it's just a nightmare to try to deal with that. And, and I don't know your guys' experience with this, but some of the experiences I've had is that it's really hard to get an interior shop that wants to do that work anymore. You know, my dad and I have had a few cars restored, and some of the cars he's restoring at his shop, he has a really hard time finding an interior shop that will do the work, do it in a timely manner, and and actually finish it the way it needs to be finished. So yeah, and I don't know, Will, your experience with it at your shop, but it, it's frustrating to me. Well, we, we actually do very, very, very little interior work in-house. Um, you know, we'll throw some seat covers on or maybe a headliner in, but, you know, the custom high-end interiors, we actually don't do in, in-house. in So, you know, there there are some interior shops out there that I work great with. They're local, and then there's some that are far off. Uh, but then there's some interior shops out there that you're like, oh my goodness, I'm never getting it out of here. Uh, when are we going to get done? So it, it's kind of one of those things in my shoes, when it's out of my shop and out of my control, it can get frustrating really quick. You know, so if you've got a good interior shop and they, you know, they do what they say they're going to do and their their work speaks for themselves there's nothing more enjoyable than going and picking a car up at an interior shop but when they don't do what they say they're going to do and you miss a deadline or you know it just stays in there too long you know that that's when it gets very frustrating on on our side of things so it's kind of it can be good and it it can be ugly too yeah my my experience kind of echoes Derek says it's really hard to find somebody to do an original interior and I think part of that is Derek and I are trying to achieve an exact replica of something else where interior shops kind of want to have a little bit of freedom they're also I find and interior people have told me they kind of hate their jobs because you bring them the car at the very end, and if I'm three weeks behind on a car, they have to make it up. <laughs> they have to give me my three weeks back. You know, they tell me they need six weeks for an interior, and I'm three weeks behind. I need them to do it in three. So there's they, ha- they have their challenges. I kind of enjoy fabric and the interior work. I probably wouldn't even say I'm good at it, remotely good. I can operate a sewing machine, and I can get a reasonably straight stitch as long as I'm not going very far. Interiors are are a challenge. Fortunately, I work with race cars now, and that's usually one seat that was 
excuse me, but half-ass covered by somebody with little, even less experience than me. So it's it's kind of easy to duplicate. But I've got a couple of guys that I can call and usually will get me taken care of. The last project I had, we actually had to ship the interior halfway across the country to get it done just because of the nature of the material, what we wanted. And it's it's a one of five car and this shop has done the other four cars. So in order to you know, maintain some of that originality and dealing with somebody who was experienced with the car, it just kind of made sense to do that. So interiors, eh, I could do without them, but a really nice interior, it lends a lot to the appearance of a car, especially in, I guess, all of our cases. But if you're doing it for a private client, it's one of the most important things. The driver's door, that hood in front of the driver, the dashboard and where their butt is, because that's what they're going to notice. And if there's something wrong there, they're going to start nitpicking everything else about that car. Interiors are a necessary evil when it comes to this stuff. Well, I'll tell you, one of, another one of my f- favorite things to do is, is buy uh, tools and equipment. Yeah, I know I've been complaining about stuff that cost me money the entire show, and now I'm talking about spending money, but... There's a little. I was gonna say. I thought. I thought one of your least favorite things to do was spend money. Now you're like, my favorite thing to do is run out and buy tools. I said one of them. You know, it's it's different I, I, when I, when you when you've done something right the first time and somebody cost you money. You know, but <laughs> that just pisses you off. But when when you can provide your guys in the shop, you know, a better piece of equipment to make their job easier, make your your job easier make your parts look better, neater, cleaner. You know, I just, I get, I don't know, I get satisfaction out of being able to uh, supply that to, to my guys that work for me, you know? I absolutely enjoy the acquisition of tools. I despise paying for them. I, you know, I sit here and I do this podcast from a corner of my uh, wood shop. And I have one of the nicest new wood tool collections in the world because I I never use the things, but I I really enjoy the acquisition of gear. Even the podcast has been fun because I've been able to acquire gear. And the acquisition of tools is fun. I'm going to make Derek mad because I'm going to talk about a tragedy. Uh, Many years ago, I learned the importance of the right tool for the right job. And Will talks about he hates spending money, but sometimes it's better to spend money on the proper tool than to do something. And back in my car stereo days, I had this 88 Mustang convertible, pony interior, white leather seats, and I'm putting a car stereo in it. And I was too lazy to go get my wire stripper, so I'm stripping wires with my uh, teeth and stripped one and my hand slipped and my finger caught the edge of that DIN chassis that goes in the dashboard and sliced the heck out of my finger to the point down to the tendons. And I'm the only one home. So I bled all over my white leather interior. I went into the house. I think I passed out for a minute or two, regained consciousness, wrapped the finger up, drove myself to the hospital, got it treated, seven stitches, still have a scar to this day. Fortunately, I didn't damage a tendon. I just cut, you know, extremely deep into the finger. Ever since that day, I refuse to do anything without the proper tool. You know, I've got all the snap-on and blue point wire cutters, wire strippers, automatic things that I can use. I have a set at home. I have a set at work, you know, because that's the big important thing. But 
when it comes to anything, if I want to make sure I have the correct tool for the correct job, because number one, it makes it easier, makes it safer, and makes it faster. And those three things will save you money in the long run all the time when it comes comes to tools. Yeah, what a- yeah I, I completely agree with that. I mean, the right tool for the right job. I mean, that's, that's probably one of the first things all of us learn um, in the hobby, uh, other than John and his car stereos, obviously. You know, and, and it is. It's, it's for the safety of the person using the tool, the safety of the vehicle that you're working on, and it does. It just makes the jobs e- job easier, and you don't get as frustrated. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to do a job with the wrong tool. I just, that frustrates me beyond belief. You know, if you go ahead and spend the money for the right tool, you're going to save money by not having to replace the part you screwed up by using crappy tools or not the correct tool for the job. So see, there we go. You spend money, but you save money. See? <laughs> the, the old adage of spend money to make money. There you, hey, you got you to gotta spend it you if you're going to make it. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. The stuff we all do, that, what you said, Will, is very important. You need a wrench that fits that bolt when you're, especially during reassembly. A lot of times during disassembly, because if the wrench fits the bolt properly, it's easier to free a rusted bolt or, a, you know, get in to access something. But reassembly, you don't worry about damaging the paint on that bolt or the, the chrome plating or the gold plating or whatever finish is on that bolt. The right tool helps with that. And, you know, I get criticized a lot for having snap-on tools that cost more than my car, a complete set of those. But those are my professional tools. Those are what I do at work. They're very important to me there. And if I don't have to go back and replate three bolts because my 10 10 millimeter or my half-inch wrench fits that bolt, bolt perfectly, and I don't have chip plating or anything on the tool... It just makes the reassembly that much better. You know, I have a special set of screwdrivers that are, going back to our just just covered topic, are only used for interior reassembly. They're never used for disassembly. They're only used for interior reassembly because I don't have to worry about the end being marred to mess up a screw head or having grease on them, you know, accidentally pulling one up and getting grease on a gray leather interior or anything. Having that tool is just, again, right tool, right job, and don't let people borrow them. You can look at my tools all you want, but don't you dare touch my tools. One of my biggest things is we use a lot of AN fittings and and stuff like that and, you know, stainless brake lines. And if you're dealing with brake lines, get line wrenches. That's what they're made to do. You have to put a lot of torque on those. A regular open-end wrench it's not going to do it. You got to have a line wrench and and then AN wrenches, you know. I only do I only do four or five brake lines per car, so I pick those up at Harbor Freight. <laughs> well, well there you go. As long as you got a set of line wrenches, you won't hear me complain, all right? <laughs> you know, and that's just just a perfect example of what John's talking about is is use the right tool for the job you're doing. It'll save you time, it'll save you money. It'll save you a lot of headache. 
It was weird as, like I said, I've got a group of friends that just returned from the Goodwood Festival or Hill Climb or whatever was just a couple of weeks ago, and they met some European tool manufacturers, and they were talking. They're in awe. There's a European tool manufacturer that makes a set of screwdrivers that is designed to be able to be hit by a hammer. So we all use our screwdrivers as chisels. You really shouldn't do that, but do you really also want to be reassembling your street rod, freshly re- built street rod or your freshly restored car with a set of screwdrivers you've used as chisels? Even if they were designed for that, you're going to mar the ends, you're going to you know, damage the bolts. So in theory, that makes sense. I guess the company also makes an uh, adjustable wrench that also doubles as a hammer. It's got a hammer face on that adjustable end. And You'd think you beat on that enough, that, that adjustable wrench, which I guess the teacher, professor, Professor John Thorpe, back from Illinois Central College when I was there for my modern automotive degree, he would throw you out of shop class if you had a, an adjustable wrench in your toolkit. Those don't belong anywhere except, I guess, a plumber's van. They don't serve any purpose other than to aid you in being lazy. So it goes back again to... Right tool for the right job. If you need a hammer, get a hammer. If you need a chisel, get a chisel. If you need a screwdriver, get a a screwdriver. Need a pry bar, get a pry bar. And each one of those tools is their tool for a reason. There's one good reason to have an adjustable wrench in your toolbox. And that is to change out your oxygen and its settling bottles. (laughs) That's it. I, I thought you were going to say to throw it at the guy that's upsetting you. I think for you, about but... 300 bucks, you can get one that will fit your ox- oxygen and acetylene bottles. Now, remember, you have to get the left-handed and right-handed thread wrenches for that. <laughs> yeah. So you have $600 into the set. But... Uh, I believe I'll stick with my adjustable on that. It works great. Which I got a good adjustable now, all right? It ain't some, you know... Taiwan stuff. No, back 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 in my durable medical days, every every van had a, the adjustable wrench for the for the oxygen bottles that there went into go. people's homes. So, <laughs> and they've got that nice little hole on the other end for tightening the regulators sometimes too for the the smaller yeah. cylinders. Well, when you when you have oxygen acetylene and then you have, you know, big bottles of pure argon on your TIG welders and then bottles of you know the mix on your migs and some of them are different sizes you know it's it's all right to tighten them things up with an adjustable wrench but that's that's about it we'll go ahead and wrap it up there this is going to end this episode also we appreciate uh, this ended up being a two episode we we kind of chatted we got off the rails a little bit but we appreciate you being with us hopefully for both episodes you know this has been a, f- a fun evening with us chatting about I guess the highs and lows and the people and the wonderful things that happen when it comes to restoration and making and building street rods and just the car life in general. Again, thanks everybody for uh, hanging out with us tonight and uh, we'll look for you next week. If you have questions or comments, email us at nodrivinggloves at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to No Driving Gloves using your favorite podcast catcher. Follow No Driving Gloves on Facebook or Instagram. And most of all, please check out our page on Patreon where you can help keep our tires rolling.